I can't screw up being a mom because that would have disastrous outcomes for my kids. You know, I can't screw up being a great doctor because that would have consequences for patients and other people's lives. And I can't screw up being a good army officer because there's a lot of expectations. Welcome to War Docs. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of military physicians. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active-duty vascular surgeon. On this episode of WarDocs, we are privileged to speak with Colonel Dr. Laurel Neff. She's a graduate of West Point and received her DO degree from the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. She is board certified by the American Board of Family Medicine and is a fellow of the American Academy of Family Physicians. Colonel Neff is currently attending War College at the Dwight D. Eisenhower School for National Security and Resource Strategy. She's also held multiple academic and leadership positions in Army medicine and has been deployed as a brigade surgeon. For additional information, you can read her full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. Welcome to Wardox. It's a pleasure to have Dr. Laurel Neff on tonight. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I saw that you were the youngest graduate from Quaker High School, and you were so young that you had to have your parents' signature to join the military. And for those people who don't know, you have to be at least 18 in order to join the military without having a parent's signature. What led you to military medicine? From a young age, always wanted to be a part of the military. And my mom really fostered that sense of uh, service and actually wanted me to apply to all the military academies at the same time. But it was really the West Point that sparked an interest in me. And I, when I got accepted, I remember getting the package in the mail that said I was accepted. And I literally took that package, ran all the way back to my high school, showed it to my advisor, said I got in. So I was very excited when I got in. And my parents, honestly, even though they were flower children and neither of them you know, had any Terry connection personally, my grandfather on my dad's side, neither of them really had any concerns or questions when I said I wanted to join the military. And, and they were more than happy to sign me over to the academy. Now, were you thinking medicine at that time or did that come later? I actually was. I thought applying to college, I thought I was either going to be an engineer or go into medicine. And when I got accepted to West Point, I thought for sure I was going to be an engineer. I didn't get accepted to Cornell Life Sciences and I didn't get accepted to some other life sciences program. So I thought this was sort of, you know, God speaking, like you're going to be an engineer. And then I, when I got to the academy and I saw what the engineer program was, I was like, mm, not so much for me. But then I became a political science major because I, I also didn't want to join the life science department there. It's, it was kind of small. And lo and behold, I mean, again, there's probably some providence there, but I was able to work with my advisor and do all the credit hours that I needed to, to meet the minimums for med school. I took the MCAT. I had to compete, which meant I had to go before a board and present my case as to why I should go to medical school, even without a life science degree. 
And I had to be selected out of my class. It started out as about a class of 1100, but I had to make that top, whatever, 2% of the class in order to get selected. So it was a very rigorous process to get the permission to apply to medical school. And then once I got the permission to apply, then I actually had to get accepted into a medical school. So it was a multi-step process that required a lot of dedication. And there were points along the way where I honestly doubted whether I could pull it off. But, um, you know, when it was meant to be, it was meant to be. And I've enjoyed every minute of it. Of it. So fast forward a little bit. You obviously made it through medical school and then you trained in family medicine at Fort Bragg. And after that, you found yourself assigned in Korea. How was that? Korea was an amazing experience. It's actually a great place to have your initial utilization for, and there's a lot of different jobs in Korea, but the one I, the one I got assigned to was working at a, I was assigned to a hospital, but I was working at an aid station, which, which is where your active duty population go when they're feeling sick or when they need their acute or chronic care performed. And I, you know, I had great mentors, a great OIC who worked with me. I had friends there who were also first time utilization tour types and we traveled every weekend. I wasn't working either up on the ward or in the clinic. I was traveling and I used that experience to the fullest. And then my husband came out, we were newlyweds, but he came out four times while I was out there and, and we traveled together and it was an amazing experience. I did more travel there, had more freedom there than I did in Fairbanks, Alaska, which is very secluded in the winter. It was an amazing experience. Early in your career as a physician, after graduating from medical school and residency, you had the opportunity to provide medical care to soldiers overseas, as we've just heard in Korea, and also travel to other countries and and see cultures that you may not have uh, imagined. Tell us about those assignments and some particular stories that jump out at you from those experiences. So the best one that sticks out in my mind is my medical mission trip, for lack of a better word. We called it a medret, but I was able to take one of our family medicine residents signed to Tripler, and I was the teaching faculty. And the two of us, along with a pediatrician and a pediatric resident and a few other supporting folks, went to Cambodia. And we went to a fairly remote town that um, the State Department organized for us to go visit and we set up, I believe it was a school building and people lined up, tons of people, hundreds of people lined up to come see us. It was amazing to not just be there and feel good about giving medical care to a, a local population, but also just the, the resiliency of people and to realize that we in the United States have lived a pretty benefited life or, you know, a cherished life where there are people who are living every day with meager means and still show love and gratitude and joy. It was just an amazing experience. Yeah, I've traveled in, in other ways, but I think that's probably the most influential point in my life. And I've tried to advocate as much as possible to give that experience to residents in that type of setting, because I think it, one, it just gives them a, an ability to see medicine in a different country, but also to enjoy being a doctor, what that's all about. So when you go to a, a remote location as a family medicine physician, such as Cambodia, and there's people you see who have had probably little to zero medical care in their entire life, what are the things you think about when you're trying to treat them when they present with some chronic conditions that maybe aren't going to get follow-on medical care? 
Yeah, I think that's the hardest part. Honestly, we we focused on as many acute issues as we could. I think the dentist was probably the most impactful person that came along with us. But to you know, we had some basic medications. We could treat GI infections, we could treat your generic aches and pains. Um, but you realize pretty quickly that the medications will run out. They will continue to be exposed to the elements. Um, it may not be a permanent fix, but we can at least be there and share that moment with them and, and give them as much care as we can. There were people that came through our line who clearly had problems like either cerebral palsy or you know, deformities from fractures that never got set or you know other musculoskeletal problems that are chronic that we knew we couldn't fix. But it was but it was helpful to just be there because a lot of medicine is just human touch and and the ability to be present to your patient. Now, I know that you've been deployed before and you're deployed for 15 months. And often those deployments can be very, very exciting and they can also be like Groundhog Day. Is there any particular case that stands out to you from that deployment that you'd say, man, I'll never forget that? Oh, there's so many. <laughs> um, it, and it's hard because I know that my role in the deployed setting was not at the tip of the spear. I worked in a role two and a role one facility in a pretty, you know, we, we did area support medicine, which meant anybody who didn't have a doctor or a medic assigned to them would come to our clinic. So it was kind of hodgepodge what came to our clinic. But I had, you know, a contractor who ran out of his blood pressure medicine and thought he could make it to his next scheduled R&R before he went and got refills. He ended up having a pretty significant stroke. We were able to medevac him to the local combat support hospital in Ibenzina, and he actually did really well under their care. We were thankful for that. We also had a lot of third country nationals, so people from other countries who were supporting our forces on the on the post, and one of them lacerated an artery and came in with a shoelace tied around his arm, and we were like, ah, sure, that's not doing anything significant. So, you know, the medic goes and takes it off, and, and there goes the artery splurting across the room. So we're like, okay, we're going to put a tourniquet on this as quick as possible. And so... Yeah, everything from those to trench mouth. I had never seen a case of trench mouth before. But when you are in a deployed setting and perhaps smoking more than you would normally and not brushing your teeth, trench mouth apparently can happen. It's it's pretty dramatic. And so there's a lot of little cases. So when you look back through your pictures from deployment, are there any certain images that just bring back a, a moment and stand out to you? Yes, uh, the sand. I think every picture I have from Iraq has this, this kind of foggy appearance that makes it look like it's never quite sunny in Iraq. Um, but you can't, you can't get a picture of what it was like to walk from clinic to the, to the dining facility when it feels like you're sticking a head in a, in an oven. Like there is no picture that captures that moment. Um, but that was honestly what it felt like majority of the days. We also lived very closely to the cross sabers, which, which the cross sabers were, it was a, 
I don't know if memorial is the right word, but it was the Iran-Iraq conflict. And so the, the, the road is lined with the skulls of the people that they killed. And it was just, it was a very dramatic reminder of history and the history of that country. And we would occasionally walk or run by it and it sticks out as like, oh, that's why we're here. Now, 15 months is not a short time. And especially, I mean, you hadn't been married for that long. How did you maintain resiliency and how did you handle that? And how did your, your husband handle it being gone for 15 months? Well, I can tell you my husband handled it by investing in hobbies. So he had, when I got home, he had this huge coral reef seawater fish tank that he had created from nothing. (laughs) Um, So he really invested in hobbies. And my brother-in-law actually moved out to Hawaii and stayed with him for pretty much the entire deployment. So they were able to um, to share in some of the misery of me being gone, but he works full time and he was teaching faculty at Tripler while I was deployed, really holding down the fort because there were so many deployments in the 2007, 2008 timeframe that he was really the continuity throughout the, the, the time that we were at Tripler. And, and that was, that, that was really tough for him, but. For me personally, for resiliency, just enjoying, trying to enjoy the people you're around. And I would, I will fully admit that at the 12 month mark, it was really tough to keep going, knowing that there was just three more months left. I missed five birthdays in a row for my husband between captain's career course, you know, the 15 months in Iraq and whatever else it was that caused me to miss a a birthday. Um, But we had, we actually had a, um, an 06 family physician come out and, and join us for that last three months of the deployment. And it was like a breath of fresh air. He was really able to focus us on our mission and remind us of why we were there. We started playing volleyball. We started a book club. We were able to, to just sort of get back to some morale team building events that really helped those last three months go by quicker. But it, it was tough. I was, I was the only assigned physician to that unit that did the entire 15 months um, because other physicians got pulled for, for various reasons and were backfilled. So we know that you're a mother in addition to all these amazing accomplishments and even attended airborne school after having twins. Give us a little bit of insight into what it's like being a mother, a family medicine physician, and an active duty military officer. That's a great question. I, I often say I have three professions because I find all three of those, being a mom, being a physician, being an army officer, they're all vital. I can't screw up being a mom because that would have disastrous outcomes for my kids. You know, I can't screw up being a great doctor because that would have consequences for patients and other people's lives. And I can't screw up being a good army officer because there's a lot of expectations about leading soldiers and making decisions and being strategically minded in terms of where's army medicine going? How are we going to accomplish these things that we've been asked to do? So really those three professions weigh so heavily on me, but I try to find 
balance and, and not balance from like the work-life balance, like today I'm going to do all three of these things really well, or, but at times in my life that, you know, being a parent is more important. When are those occasions where it's the only time that event's going to happen? You know, my kids are, are potentially only going to have one graduation from fifth grade or sixth grade, because maybe fifth grade is not that important, but there's these events that only come around once. And so at that point, that's the most important part of my life, right? Um, or I'm going to war college and I need to be the best student I can be because, you know, I'm being paid a full 06 wage to be a master's degree student. So I'm going to pour everything I have into being a good student. But I think being a mom for me was a game changer. And part of me is thankful that I didn't have kids at the time that I deployed, even though I had been trying and really wanted to get pregnant. We wanted to start our family before I got my deployment orders. Um, but I think everything happens in due course and having my kids when I did, which I, I was able to have them as a brigade surgeon. So I was 17 weeks pregnant, maybe 20 weeks pregnant when I showed up at my Fort Bragg assignment for brigade surgeon. And the first time I met my new brigade commander was the day after my C-section. I was in the hospital. Him and his wife came by to check on me and I had never met him before. And it was a little bit of trust because a good friend of mine had said, I, I thought about giving up the opportunity to be a brigade surgeon because I thought coming into a unit pregnant would be a death sentence. Like people would look at me like, who are you? You're not going to, you're not deployable. Why would you come to a, a deploying unit or a deployable unit? But, and I thought about just opting out of that opportunity and going into a clinic environment where I kind of had an idea of what expectations were. But in hindsight, my, one of my good friends, she said, no, do it. She's like, it'll be the best thing that you can do because the people there understand that women want to have families and they're going to have families and they're going to get pregnant. And it was the best experience I could have had. I had a PA who was another female. So when I needed to, you know, this may be too much information, but when I had to breast pump or, you know, if, if I had to do something that was maybe a little bit weird, she was totally cool with it. You just, you do what you have to do really. And I've, I've met some amazing women who've had many children while on active duty. And I, we all sort of take lessons learned from each other. I started off with my mother-in-law watching my kids for that first year of life. And then we switched to daycare, which was horrible for our family being two medical physicians with very busy careers. Um, so then we ended up with an au pair um, and then my mom moved in with us. So we've had to be really creative throughout our career, but Again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything for the world. I've met young women who say, Oh, I can't go into military medicine because I want to get married and I want to have a family. I say, what do you think we're doing? <laughs> you know, majority of us, not all of us, but a majority of us are going out there being great physicians, being great leaders and having children and a family. It takes a good spouse. It takes a supportive command, but it's incredibly doable and very rewarding. So you mentioned that you're currently enrolled in the War College, and uh, I know that you recently finished a stint as the command surgeon at the National Defense University, which I believe has five colleges that include the National War College and the Eisenhower School for National Security. And, and for those who don't know, the National Defense University was established in 1976 to consolidate intellectual resources, provide joint higher education for the nation's defense community so that 
we could educate joint warfighters in critical thinking and the creative application of military power. Now, Wayne, you didn't know that, did you? No, I had to look that up. That's okay. right. I was going to say, that's, that's pretty impressive. He looked it up. So anyway, um, tell us about the War College. Why in the world would a physician go to the War College? And what, what are the expectations there? Yeah, why would an army physician or, or any physician opt to, to go into senior service college? I think it's to be a better army physician. And if nothing else, to be a better advocate for army medicine. I truly believe that every opportunity I've had for professional military education, I've seen it as a way to just be a better leader, but it also helps me be a better physician executive. And I, and I guess to define physician executive, it's perhaps somebody who um, has a medical degree, but, but also leans towards wanting to lead at the level of being able to set policy and being able to influence the, the bigger system. Oftentimes we're, we're so focused on the patient in front of us that we, we don't always see that there's a healthcare system that also needs attention, that also needs physician engagement because without physicians engaged in the, the system, then, then it becomes more about widgets and numbers and, and metrics and it becomes less about the patient. So it's always helpful to have physicians who are patient minded, who want to bring that information back to the system and say, hey, you know, for army medicine to be successful, we really should think about X, Y, and Z. Military medicine is oftentimes used as a tool for either diplomacy or war fighting. Clearly, we have that function, um, but military medicine can play a lot of roles. That that mission trip to Cambodia um, was, was military medicine being used as a tool. There's a bigger strategy as to why Cambodia or why military medicine needs to be there. Otherwise, you could just send in the State Department or an NGO. So I think it's, it's helpful to have physicians at the table. And ironically, in my small group, there's another physician from Botswana who's sitting at the table. You know, both of us are here talking about national strategy and grand strategy. So it's, it's fun to interact with international officers. It's fun to interact with the other agencies, you know, whether it be Department of Defense or um, National Security Agency, or we have Space Force is now at the table. So it's really exciting to get all these different perspectives. It just makes me a better person and it makes me a better advocate for the rest of Medical Corps. We are recording this and the expectation is, is that it's going to be around for a while. And so you have kids and, you know, someday you have grandchildren and maybe great, great grandchildren and 50, 100 years from now, what is something that you'd want your family to know about you, your military career? Oh, that's such a hard question, Doug. <laughs> and one I wasn't fully prepared to answer. I think for me, as I get older, I get more nostalgic about where I started, right? So you asked me really great questions about how I even got into the military, how I got into military medicine. You know, this was a calling for, for me. And while sometimes I feel a little bit of guilt, like I'm, you know, making my family move every couple of years or, you know, I'm, you know, getting perhaps farther from clinical medicine instead of staying knee deep in patient care. I inherently love people 
I knew from a very young age that I wanted to do something that was a service related industry, which I, I include medicine because we are ultimately serving our patient population. But I also feel driven to serve the medical corps. I think Doug, you were there, but the, the deputy core chief job that I did a little over a year ago now was probably one of the most rewarding jobs that I've had. And I thought being a deputy commander for clinical services was a rewarding job, but the ability to advocate for other people has made all the negatives of having to move and losing, losing important objects that are just mere things, you know, they don't really carry any huge meanings, but you lose them or you break something in a move or your kids have to get used to a new school system. You know, it puts all those, those nagging issues into the bigger context, which is I love people and I love advocating for people. And I, and I wish we had the perfect healthcare system, but I'm still hopeful that we will someday. Because there are people who, like me, want to make things better. So if I had to say, you know, what is it that I want my great, great, great grandchildren to know about my time in the Army? First of all, I hope they're in the Army because I'm hoping this will be a legacy of some sort, but maybe not seeing where my kids are, are motivated. But, you know, I would, I would hope that they would look at me and realize that I, live to serve. And that that's my driving motivation in life. Thanks for the question, by the way. Sure. I just wanted to say thank you for your time and thank you for being on Wardock's podcast. Uh, we've been listening to Dr. Laurel Neff talk about her experiences in military medicine, and uh, we really appreciate your time. So thank you. Thank you guys. I think what you're doing is wonderful and I appreciate you uh, recording our legacy. It's important. For our Army Medical Corps listeners that may want to hear more about professional military education, we've included a bonus segment immediately following the Wardocs outro. For the rest of you, thanks for listening. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and a five-star review and share this with your contacts on social media. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests at our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word. We've included a bonus segment that a targeted portion of our audience may find informative. So I'm going to segue just a little bit, and this may be some inside baseball, you know, for some of our listeners, but um, it's very pertinent to our active duty listeners and, and reserve physicians. And that's the overall concept or topic of professional military education. It was interesting to me to find out when I was on active duty that, that the basic officer leadership course really was the only requirement for medical corps officers. That was the one thing that they had to do in order to be deployable. And I know there was some controversy about trying to get this all done before the physicians came on active duty. And I think we were able to figure out ways to make that happen. And so getting that done before starting your internship and residency, I think is very important. And we made some strides to do that. 
But I think one of the questions that comes up a lot is the captain's career course, which is the junior officer level or military education. And the the Army Medical Corps Facebook site has you know a bunch of people following it, and they have a lot of questions about the captain's career course. And so I wanted to kind of push it over to Wayne here for a second to, to maybe talk about some of those questions and what are your thoughts? So recently we've, we've had a few questions about unique uh, military education that exists. Can you tell us what are the educational pathways unique to the military that physicians do or that you have done in order to get to a point where you're now a student at the war college as a physician? Clearly to be a student at war college, you it, it all builds upon itself. So you you would have had to have gone to the officer's, the basic course, captain's career course, intermediate level education, and then the sort of icing on the cake is senior service college. They, they all build on each other. So you get a wider and wider exposure at each level. There were other military unique courses that I was able to take that I think helped or help me be a better student. So one of them was the defense strategy course, which is an online four-month distance learning course that physicians can opt into. So let me let me go back to the captain's career course, which is generally targeted for junior officers at the, the grade of captain or major. And for other branches like infantry and armor, they go to their captain's career course for six months. They move there. Um, they move their family there sometimes. And it's a lot different from what the medical corps does. And in the past, we know that the medical corps had an option for a three-week captain's career course, which recently changed to a nine-week option. And there was even some talk about going up to six months. Now, there seems to be a little bit of angst from the medical community. They are just finishing residency and training, and they want to do what they can to be a good doctor. And now they're confronted with the choice of saying, should I go away to a course that will advance my career, but maybe hurt my readiness and my practice for nine weeks or even more than that? What are your thoughts on who needs to go to captain's career course if you're a physician and what's the best way to make that happen? I would love to see every medical corps officer go to the career course. I think it's just very helpful before you go into that first job where you're probably going to be called upon to be an officer in charge of the clinic, or you may be assigned to an operational unit. You may be asked to take on a junior leadership position. It's really helpful to have already gone through the captain's career course before getting to your first duty assignment. I fully understand the angst of having to step out of clinical medicine to focus on something that may appear unrelated. I would say career course is probably, of all the PME is probably the most medically oriented. So captain's career course really, out of all the the levels of PME is probably the most medically oriented PME. It's run by our own center of excellence. You will be around other army medicine officers, whether it be optometrists, physical therapists, our medical service corps officers. It's really, I think, a great opportunity to get familiar with the roles and responsibilities of all the different people that you're going to come across in your career. Um, and while it may feel 
frustrating to to have to put aside the stethoscope for for a few months. I think it's very rewarding to sort of recharge your battery and recognize that there is another facet to your army career or your your ability to be an army physician. I had a great time. I I worked really hard to get sent to career course. I was probably the odd duck who who thought it would be fun, maybe because I was a political science major in college. I don't know. Um, but it was rewarding for me to learn about army medicine and to figure out my role as an army physician in the bigger picture of army medicine. You know, I would say I would totally agree with you. I think that the captain's career course is a vital stepping stone for medical corps officers. And I know that a lot of people said, well, the three week course was, that was great, but now it's gone. And I'd have to say, I don't think that three week course is coming back. But before I left active duty, we really understood that, you know, physicians have some other education that they need to do. And, you know, they weren't exactly the same as every other officer in the army. And so we looked at some options of, you know, and we learned some things from COVID with distance learning that I I think we may in the future be able to mirror what the reserves does for captain's career course for medical corps officers. And the plan there is to have four phases that are really two phases are in person for two weeks at a time, and then two distance learning phases or distributed learning phases. So my hope is that that becomes a reality and it may makes it easier for folks who don't really have a a natural nine-week period to get out of clinical medicine and do that training because I do think it's important. One thing I do wanted to talk about is the the next step after Captain's Career Courts, which is the Intermediate Level Education, ILE. And there's different options for medical corps officers to do ILE. Can you briefly talk about those options and tell us why a medical corps officer would consider doing ILE, which is really not medically focused? This is you're doing the same ILE as everybody else in the Army. First off, I would say even just like with ILE, where there's different options, I think as senior leaders in Army Medicine, I think it's important for us to advocate for options because there are going to be folks who want to do the nine-week course. You know, they're eager to meet other people. They're eager to figure out their role in Army Medicine, and they want that exposure. And then there's going to be people who want to be master clinicians, right? And they they may not need the full Monty, may just need the down and dirty information that makes them function well in their role. Um, With ILE, I think we have those options already. I think it's a much better um, opportunity because you have the the 10-month in-residence course at Fort Leavenworth, which is the one I did. Uh, You have the four-month options, which my understanding is they're going to bring those four-month options to Leavenworth. It's still being trying to, they're still trying to figure out how they're going to work that. Um, But, but there's, you know, there's goodness in consolidating some of those resources and you'll get exposed potentially to, to different speakers and people that come to Fort Leavenworth to, to talk and teach. And then, you know, you have, I had a friend who did the reserve option for ILE. She was able to get a reserve option while she was a program director. 
And then there's your distance learning option, which can be challenging. Um, but I've, I've known several physicians who've been able to be successful doing the distance learning option, whether it was during a deployment or perhaps when, you know, they, they had the support of their, of their immediate supervisor to use part of their week to, to do the distance learning option. Um, obviously it, it can be challenging if you have a really busy job, but again, you know, meeting the, the intent of immediate intermediate level education or ILE is really to start expanding your knowledge base, right? So you go from captain's career course where you're focused on army medicine, you step into ILE and now you're interacting with people from the logistics world and people from infantry. In my small group, we had a special operations officer, an MP, an MI, an AG, you know, an engineer, the list goes down the road. Plus we had an Air Force and a Navy guy. It just helps expand your understanding of how the Army works and gives you a little taste of how Air Force and Navy works. And it's really not until you get to senior service college where you really start to end out and look more joint. So one of the things that I've heard about people who've done the distributed learning version is they almost feel bad about asking for some time off during the duty day to help them get their assignments done. Do you think it's appropriate for doctors to get some time during their normal duty hours, complete some of the distance learning requirements? Personally, so I'm going to say I'm I'm not representing any kind of Army organization at this point, but personally, I would say if I were a supervisor and I had an officer come to me and say, hey, you know, for whatever reason, whether it be personal because I just can't move my family right now or I can't afford to be away from clinical practice for four months, I think the Army should support an officer who's interested in PME and growing into a be a better army officer, we should support their efforts by carving out time in their, their weekday job, right? So we shouldn't just expect them to do it after hours on the weekends, you know, because then clearly they're going to take away from family time. I would support that. And I know for me, the hard thing when I was trying to decide whether or not to opt in for war college via distance learning, you know, the hard thing for me was knowing that my personality, I would have a hard time carving that time out for myself, right? Even if my supervisor, or my boss was willing to say, hey, I'll give you, you know, a half day twice a week or you know, a full day. Um, but I would have a hard time putting aside my work. But there have been really successful people. Our yeah, JBLM, I had a I knew of of a lab officer who did senior service college by distance learning. I know of another uh, Army physician who's I, several <laughs> who are doing distance learning for senior service college. It's really just being able to have that negotiation with your supervisor. And, and if I were a supervisor, I would work really hard to protect that time for them. It just makes for a better medical corps. Yeah, I mean, I think that people just want to hear that it's it's not a sign of weakness to ask your supervisor to you know have some consideration of your desire to improve your you know military education. Oh, amen. I, I think you are spot on. It, it is not a sign of weakness and it should be looked at as an investment in people because we're all about people first. It should be looked upon as we're making army medicine better by having this person fully trained. And, and 
I will double down on the fact that as a deputy commander of clinical services, I sent one of my junior officers to the nine-week captain's career course because it was his time. He needed to go for his career development because he wanted to go into fellowship and it was time for him to go to career course. So it, it does hurt. I, w- I will admit as a supervisor, as a boss, it hurts to take that hole sometimes, but it for the better, greater good. If someone was to ask you as they were contemplating whether or not they were would go to ILE, what would you tell them in a very short snippet, snippet what the intent of ILE is overall? So the intent of ILE overall, from my perspective, is really to give you the perspective of the bigger army, right? It helps solidify army medicine's role in how the army operates as a, how big army operates. I took a joint planning course. I took a sustainment port operations course. It just, it just gives you the ability to understand the army at large, which I think is important because we can oftentimes be really stovepiped in army medicine. And I think understanding how the line officer sees us as army medicine. We need to be closer aligned. We don't want to get farther away from their intent because then we become irrelevant. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of War Docs Military Medical Podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and a five-star review and share this with your contacts on social media. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests at our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.